People line up every day in front of pharmacies in every city in America to get there early, to get their psychopharmacological drugs so that they can be so-called stabilized while they're shaking and desperate and anxious and depressed and scared, sometimes terrified, and thinking that the medicine is actually containing them when in fact, very often, it's perpetuating those conditions or in the more, in the more extreme cases, causing directly the symptoms it's marketed to treat. Welcome to Neurons to Nirvana, a platform for creative forces that embrace the unconventional and the quest for artistry, humanity, innovation, health, and healing of the mind and soul. Join me, Tom Hartridge, on a journey celebrating experiences unbound by physical borders or traditional norms. From inside the mind to the far reaches of the universe, this is Neurons to Nirvana. My guest on this episode is Dr. Fred Moss. Dr. Fred Moss joins me remotely from his Welcome to Humanity podcast recording studio. The Welcome to Humanity podcast explores what it means to be human. It also directly addresses topics related to mental health. Dr. Fred is on a personal mission to discover new ways of talking about diagnosing and treating mental health to eliminate the stigma and reduce harm. Dr. Fred offers several ways to embrace your authenticity, bring compassion to your conversations, and rethink traditional mental health philosophies. He's considered the self-proclaimed undoctor and brings a perspective many medical professionals aren't willing to discuss. His opinion can be controversial, and if you'd like more information about his philosophies and podcasts, visit welcometohumanity.net. Also, please like and follow the Neurons to Nirvana podcast. Now let's meet Dr. Fred. Dr. Moss, how are you? Oh, great. Great to see you, Tom. Thanks for having me on the show. It's just a pleasure and an honor. Likewise. Thank you so much for joining me today. And I'm excited to listen to what you do and share with my audience how you have this compelling way of inspiring people. And one of the reasons why I was interested in speaking to you is you've sort of redirected your career into podcasting yourself. You've got a podcast called Welcome to Humanity Podcast. Tell me how that all began and how that started. What was the wow. genesis of that? Wow. Okay. Well, do you want a long, medium, short answer? I, I can give you. I can give you a story that is pretty good and how it ends up in the lap of podcasting. It takes about I don't know five or seven minutes. Here, here's how it goes. I was born to communicate. And when I say that, I really mean it. Like the first second that I came out, my two brothers, 10 and 14 years old, and my parents uh, were looking for me to bring communication to a home that was in fair amount of chaos and disarray. And it was like, little Freddie's going to show up here and bring joy and peace and love and laughter into this family. And uh, so it's been a full-time job for my 64 years on the planet to be one who communicates and brings joy, peace, love, and laughter to our human family. I didn't know it at the time that that would be what I'd be doing 64 years later. And I haven't done it every minute, but, you know, I've taken some time off from doing those things and done some opposite things. But nevertheless, here I go. And so, you know, even as a, as a little child in a, in, in a um, playpen, I used to love watching my parents and my brothers speak and really saw the power and essence of communication it being uh, so critical to human advancement and how things got done. 
So I was hoping to learn how to communicate maybe in school. My brothers had taught me how to be pretty precocious and I knew how to read and learn, knew how to do math when I entered kindergarten and none of my other friends did. And so I was always ahead of the class. And then I was speaking a lot as a child in elementary school. There's no teacher that ever had me in their class who would forget having Fred in their class, that's for sure. And um, I just really wanted to learn how to communicate more than anything. That's what I thought school would be for. It's always, and as I say this to you now, it's what I thought life was for. It's what I thought everything was for. But it isn't what was happening in elementary school. The kids were too young and they were asking us to do things that didn't seem about communication. So I figured that I would eventually learn in junior high. So going through elementary school, I was like, yeah, that's where the big kids are. We'll do junior high, learn how to communicate. But although, you know, when I got there, it was disappointing. No one's communicating there either. In fact, it might even have been worse than elementary school. So I figured, oh, that's why they call it high school. Because when you get to high school, they're going to teach me how to communicate. I can become a communication master. Uh, so I got to high school and, and Tom, you know, I got to high school in, in, in the seventies and there wasn't that much going on in the world of communication, at least not in the classrooms. And, and so that didn't work either. And, uh, I was like, okay, I'll give this one last try. You know, I, I like the helmets and, and I heard the city was cool. So let me go to, uh, Ann Arbor and go to university of Michigan. Okay. So, uh, you know, I went to university of Michigan uh, with the full expectation of finally learning how to communicate with the smart and big kids, you know, like, you know, this was like the school to go to. And, you know, and they did have cool helmets, as you know. And I was like, okay, I got there and and it was disappointing again, frankly, you know, in the classrooms, what they really wanted me to do was sit there, be quiet, watch the professor or teacher, put some stuff on the board that I had never seen or heard of, try to understand that stuff, at least in a way that I could regurgitate it back as identical as possible. And if I did that, that was called communication and I was allowed to move ahead in school. But for me, that wasn't communication at all. That was the opposite of communication. I learned a little bit in the city of Ann Arbor, but I, that wasn't getting my grades, that's for sure. And so there was an opportunity then to do what I thought was best, which was to leave school entirely, get on a Greyhound bus and go around the country and learn how to communicate and find myself. And that's what I did. I came all the way to Berkeley, California, like uh, any good 20-year-old would do, and try to find myself and found a little bit of myself, but also found I didn't have a job. So without a job or a career. I knew I was smart enough to have a career. Someone told me, go back to school, get a career, and then come out and find yourself. I said, okay, that's a good, <laughs> that's a good plan. So I, back to Michigan, I went. I uh, started Michigan and started studying computers. That Someone told me I could make some money with COBOL and Fortran. They had, they had the computer there. It was like two acres big, you know, and, uh, <laughs> and it was like, okay, uh, this isn't working either. So I came, I just quit again. I came home. I'm a two-time college dropout. I walk home. I tell, you know, I walk into my house. I'm like, mom, I am not going to college ever again, period. She's like, okay, that's cool. That's acceptable. But you are going to have to get a job. She got me an application for working as a childcare worker at a state hospital for adolescent boys. Now, after orientation, I thought I would just buy myself a Volkswagen and you know what I would do with that, right? You wouldn't get in and drive around <laughs> the country and go find out what my life was about, you know? That's what I figured I would do with that money I chunked up in, in the first three weeks. But instead, someone convinced me to go to the floors on the fourth week. That was my friend, Paul. And I got put on the 14 to 16 year old uh, boys floor. And all of a sudden, I was being paid to communicate. And that's all I had to do. It was just like me and you are doing.
And you know, these kids were six years, seven years younger than me, but I didn't, I didn't care that they were younger. And I certainly didn't care that they lived in a hospital. And, you know, their circumstances were their circumstances, sometimes quite a bit more unfortunate than mine. And other times just like, you know, flip of a dice, it just is. And I saw them as people, as friends, as colleagues, as other humans. And I dealt with people like that. I dealt with these kids like that. So along with being paid to communicate and somehow healing them through understanding and resonating with them, I also healed myself. It was confirmation again, confirmation again that communication and connection are at the heart of all healing. The thing I hated about that job was the way psychiatry was dealing with the kids. See, we'd call a psychiatrist and say, you know, Timmy's up too late or Johnny and Tony got into a fight. And the psychiatrist would come down from his on-call room with this thing here that called a weapon. I mean, I'm sorry, called a pen. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they would interview the kid for like two seconds and then interview maybe the childcare worker for five seconds and maybe the nurse for 20 seconds, then write something in the chart. Then we'd have to go find that kid, drag him into the quiet room, hold him down, two or three or four of us. Uh, you know, be careful not to be spit at, scratched or bit and or kicked and jam them full of some me injectable medicine. And, you know, if he was stopped talking and start, you know, just sleeping and he'd sleep for 12, 24 hours, we would call that a successful intervention. This really happened a lot. And by the way, continues to happen a lot in hospitals. And it was unacceptable, barbaric to me. It was just something I could not manage or deal with or be a part of no matter how much fun I was having communicating. I eventually made it my business to go back to school to what I now thought was the hallmark of learning how to be a communication master, which in 1980, 1982, was going to psychiatry, the top of the heap of the communication pattern. My brother was already a psychiatrist, the 14-year-old, one 14 years older than me. So I knew that there was a possibility and I knew I had the aptitude and the passion. And if I really put my nose to the grindstone, I could probably get to medical school and all that. So I went to medical, so I went through that trip over the next 13 years, continuing to be a childcare worker the whole time, eventually graduating from Northwestern University and the University of Cincinnati for a residency. There I was as a psychiatrist. But in the meantime, Tom, there was an introduction in 1987 of a very important paradigmatic shifting element, which was called Prozac. And so Prozac was introduced and that changed everything about psychiatry. Now psychiatry was no longer about communication. It was about chemical imbalance. It was about biological psychiatry. And it was the notion that if you were uncomfortable with any part of the world or yourself, there was something wrong with you. Yes. And that's how it went. So, you know, all of a sudden I went from being someone who, you know, literally went into the field so I wouldn't have to deal with psychiatrists who were medicating people to becoming a psychiatrist who was medicating people. Not only was I medicating people, I was medicating tens of thousands of people. And I was doing that, you know, not because I love doing it. Each time I wrote one of a prescription, and I literally have written hundreds of thousands of prescriptions for at least 40,000 patients that at least for a second have called me their doctor, my soul was sacrificed. I felt the heart pain. I felt my heart break. I did so, you know, I was, I had a powerful position. I was uh, eventually became even a psychopharmacological expert by golly. And, you know, known around the nation as such, and, you know, known by the drug companies, but never, you know, I was always a little bit rogue and I wasn't, it was like, no, this stuff's not working as well as you think it is. It's actually making people worse. 
So around 2006, I got this brainstorm that it was time for me to really check on something. And I took my low risk patients. This was, you know, almost 20 years into my career. I took my low risk patients off their medicines, you know, even they have one medicine like Prozac or Zoloft or something. And, and they got better, like reliably, way better, like way better, even if they were doing good, but they got way better, fully free of their symptoms, whatever they're calling the symptoms. And then I started seeing that, well, maybe they don't even have a diagnosis. Maybe the medicine and the diagnosis itself is actually sustaining the diagnosis that they're carrying. Again, we'll go a little bit fast forward. I started doing that with a greater number of patients and each and every one of them pretty reliably got way better. Sometimes the system didn't want them to get better, but they got better. And sometimes they wanted to get back to being stuporous, so we would put them back on their medicine. But that's a whole different story for a different podcast. Eventually, I really started seeing that it's not the medicine's fault. It's the fact that we diagnose people with being having something wrong with them, being afflicted, affected, defective, et cetera. And people buy it. They want to be have something wrong with them. You know, psychiatry is the only field in all of medicine where people come in to find out if there's something's wrong with them. And if you tell them there's nothing wrong with them, they get furious. Really? <laughs> yeah. You've had that happen? Way more, way more than 100 times. People don't come to a psychiatrist to learn that something's okay. I, I just have to throw myself under the bus because I've already done so. Uh, I, as sensitive adolescents, have struggled with depression. So Prozac was my first guinea pig, so to speak, trial basis of an antidepressant. This was back in the late 90s, and I don't think it did anything. And But at that time, the mentality was just put them on, whether it was my parents, and, and right. they were doing the best they could, or the psychiatrist at the time, just throw them on Prozac. Right. I was suffering from panic attacks. Right. Nobody really knew how to address it. But I've always felt like the only way we can do this is talk therapy and to take a pill or multiple pills. And I can't tell you how painful that was when you are coming into your own and you're trying to learn, basically you're living your own rite of passage and you're having somebody try to diagnose you when you're saying, no, I don't think you're really listening to what I'm saying at all. And taking IQ tests and just trying to extrapolate all types of diagnoses. And that's why I was fascinated when I read your biography that you sort of drifted away from the non-prescribing because as you've explained, so give me the data points just loosely on how this affected and how how they changed where they didn't need the medication because i think that's fascinating yeah it is fascinating so look if you could create a item a product that actually created the symptoms that had people buy that product it's a terrific business model it's a never ending to the top business model it's absolutely amazing it would create a multi-billion dollar business, I promise. There's no stopping it. Oh, wait, wait, wait a second. That's what psychopharmacology is. Exactly. <laughs> and it is a multi-billion dollar business. Now, the truth is, it's if I, I don't blame the drug companies, I don't blame the medicines, and I don't even blame the doctors, and I don't really blame the system. There's nothing to blame here. It's just the way it is. 
people line up every day in front of pharmacies in every city in America to get there early, to get their psychopharmacological drugs so that they can be so-called stabilized while they're shaking and desperate and anxious and depressed and scared, sometimes terrified, and thinking that the medicine is actually containing them when in fact, very often, it's perpetuating those conditions or in the more in the more extreme cases, causing directly the symptoms it's marketed to treat. They never taught us doctors how to take people off a of medicine. You know, even to talk about weaning off a of medicine is really a mis it's really a difficult thing too, because you know, you take a month or two to wean off a of medicine, you you know, run over your cat or slip over a banana peel or do whatever you do. And then you blame you like, I never ran over my cat when I was on my medicine. And so I must be my medicine and boom, you're back on your medicine again. Or, or the even more heinous uh, notion, um, you know, it would tragic notion is that the possibility that when you come off these medicines and you get this so-called, they, what they call withdrawal symptoms, you get a spike of the symptoms that the drug is marketed to treat. So, when you come off an antidepressant, even if you weren't depressed when you started it, when you come off, you will be depressed, I promise. It will happen. And the reason that is, is because that's how the drug is built. The drug is built so that when you come off of it, you get a, you get a nice shot of the actual symptoms that this drug is marketed to treat, whether or not it preexisted. Now, if you don't know that, you will think this is a return of your symptoms in spades, and you'll say, I don't like taking medicine, but I don't like coming off of medicine even more. And so back to medicine I go, and I am never coming off this stuff ever again. Now, here's the thing. Nobody is making people take medicine. You're believing a system that you've been taught to believe. You know, there's something wrong with you because you're depressed or you're anxious or you have panic attacks or your thoughts are moving too fast or too slow or you're not getting stuff done or you're afraid of crowds or, you know, you're having bad relationships or you're spending too much money or too religious or too much sex or not enough sex or you got something like that going on. I promise. And uh, if you walk into a doctor's office and he tells you oh, you're okay, you're going to be you're going to be like, I don't think you're listening. Well, <laughs> the truth is I am listening and you're okay. And you really don't want a diagnosis. So when you take on a diagnosis and you begin to take medications, you confirm the notion that there's something wrong with you, especially in those cases where the medicine is creating something wrong with you physiologically. Now there is, you're right. You thought you were depressed. Now you are. And the medicine also gives you a sense of alleviating those symptoms. So let's fast forward a little bit because what happens next is I get reminded, just like I did when at Fairlawn Center when I was working with those kids, that communication is really where it's at. Not only communication, but con yeah, creativity, conversation, and especially connection. When someone's connected and you and I are already feeling it because I see your head, when your head's going, yeah. like this, what happens when you say that is that me and you develop a resonance that is extraordinary in the human experience. And a rapport. A rapport, an understanding, right. a baseline, a level play, a level playing field. We develop something that has us both get that we are both human. And we are simply walking through the human experience, not having a clue about what this next step is, and frankly, acting like we got our stuff together when we don't know beans about what how life really goes. We don't. Now, those of us say, okay, you might be a man of God, or you might be a man of Buddha, you might be, you know, a meditator, and you think you got some stuff going on, and you, you probably do. I mean, certainly more helpful than if you don't have that. But you have no idea what life is about, and neither does any of us. 
And so when we start with really looking at another person like, oh yeah, this is my brother or this is me, like you are me. Like, you know, if we start looking at that, that's when healing and rapport really start. And I'll tell you what, at that moment, that's when you've created a connection and people change instantly. They don't need nine years of psychoanalysis. They don't need to move to Tibet or a cave. They don't. You don't need to go to an ashram. You don't need to spend every morning in church. You don't have to do that. You can. They're all good things to do. It's fine. I don't have anything against any of those things. And then you're like, you know, look at your symptoms, the so-called panic attacks or depression or whatever your symptom is. You have a do you know that if you go to a psychiatrist and the psychiatrist writes that you're okay, that he doesn't get paid by third party? I had no clue. That's a dirty little secret if that's the truth. It is the absolute truth. I've never once heard that, and I've certainly delved into absolute the realm and <laughs> of psychiatry. It's absolutely true. If you write no diagnosis, you won't get paid. Wow. What I did know is a lot of, and correct me if I'm wrong, a lot of psychiatrists in the industry, you have reps who come in and oh, yeah. and you get a cut or you're pushed. No, not to, a cut. Not a cut. Not I, a cut? Okay. No, they changed that. Right before I graduated, they changed that. We don't get a cut uh, at all. Never get a cut. And it is, again, people tend to villainize the medicine. It's like villainizing rat poison. You don't... It, if you go to a barbershop enough times, you're going to get a haircut. If you go to a psychiatrist, you're going to get medicines. It's not their fault. In some ways, it's just what we've been trained to do. You know, if, you know, Tom, if I ask you what's the difference between a psychologist and a psychiatrist, more than likely you have the same answer everyone does. Non-prescribing. What is, like, there you go. That's it. Non, it's non-prescribing. That's the yeah. only difference that I That's, can. I know. Even though we went, we went totally different routes, psychology and psychiatry, that we didn't even see each other in the same campus. But the typecast is that a psychiatrist is the one who prescribes medicine. This is really interesting, you see, because now I had now become that which I went into school never to do. And I became really good at it. I became, you know, I started in telepsychiatry. I began to go around the world and you know, do, do work from Israel or from Paris or from London into the United States via, um, you know, via the modem or via Zoom or whatever. And I was looking over and over again for the job that would allow me to exploit the very real, ongoing, undeniable fact that connection is at the heart of all healing. So that by 2016, I, I finally had enough. And it wasn't like I, I need, you need to back out slowly. I backed out a little bit slowly. I'm still not, you know, still got to be a little, little trepidatious about it. And by 2016, I created a business called Welcome to Humanity, which is kind of self-explanatory. It basically says, welcome to the human experience, including all the miracles, the beauty and the ecstasy on the one side and the misery, pain and discomfort on the other side. Like all of this are exquisite experiences associated with being alive. No, it's not like they're all equal. If I had to choose between ecstasy and misery, I'm, I like everyone. I'm going to choose ecstasy, of course. <laughs> but but it still comes with the package, whether you desire it or not. There's nobody on the planet who doesn't know this word misery. We got it. It's here. Absolutely. You don't yes, have to look. We all far. have trials and tribulations, and we have unique experiences. It's a wave. It's an undulation of both happiness and misery, and misery, and deep misery in some cases, and. It doesn't, it's like blaming the log for burning in a fire. It's like, you don't blame the log for burning in a fire. It's not a bad log because it caught fire. The idea is, is that life lends itself to so many different experiences. So in Welcome to Humanity, we really began to be a coach, a transformational restorative coach, walking people 
Then I got the name the undoctor. And the undoctor is someone who undiagnoses, unmedicates, and then undoctrinates their patients and you know takes them right out of the medical field. And I had some good times with that. People who were ready, who were tired of the whole industry, maybe, you know, look, for your listeners, if what you're doing is taking medicine and you appreciate your diagnosis and it's all working out for you and you're getting along just as well as you want to in the world by doing all that, accepting your diagnosis, accepting your medicine, by all means, please, please, please continue doing that. If you found something that's working, way good for you. Like, please don't stop. Yeah, that's the ideal goal for anybody. That's the goal. If you got something, so this doesn't have to apply to people like, oh no, I got borderline personality disorder and I take Prozac and Depakote and my life is perfect. Okay, super awesome. No problem, I'm not even arguing that, it's great. And I'm also not diminishing the impact of the misery. In other words, this is not like it's all in your head, get over it. No, it's not all, it, it's, maybe it is all in your head, but misery is real. What I wanna get is that I wanna emphasize those negative experiences as being part of humanity and by connecting to another person at that level, that's where healing takes place way deeper than any medication that's ever been created in any laboratory, ever, ever. So Welcome to Humanity naturally went forth from 2016 and developed over time and started writing a little bit and teaching some classes and coaching some cool people. And um, you know, now we'll hop forward a few more years to the true voice age, which is, I began even in 2000, we're talking really in 2006, where the first time I had heard the word podcasting, but you can hear from the way I talk and you know, for the, my elementary school teachers, none of them would be surprised that I'm a podcaster, that's for sure, that I like talking, I like communicating, I'm, I'm pretty good at it. And, and I have 40,000 patients spill their guts on me, so I've gotten really good at it. And the idea is, wow, why don't I be a podcaster? Because Welcome to Humanity podcasting makes sense. I can interview really interesting people. I can bring forth their greatness. I can, you know, uh, cut through to the chase about what's working and what isn't in their lives that will have an impact on the listeners. So podcasting just made so much sense for me to become a natural in the world of podcasting. And I did do that. As time went on, I began to realize that I was a lucky dog because podcasting is the last remaining vestige. Not no algorithms, no canceling, no censorship. Uh, you know, you can actually direct this conversation to somebody in Thailand or Johannesburg if you want, without any problem, on the moment that you want to, and they'll be there and listening to your pure, unadulterated self. That's correct. That's the most appealing thing about it for me. And obviously you. there's never been, yeah, there's never been anything like this. And frankly, I doubt there will ever be anything more like this, which is so freaking gorgeous and liberating and liberating. Like we get to talk in this area, in this time, this era where the greatest threat on the planet isn't what you think it is. Yep. The greatest threat on this planet, it's not a virus. It's not global warming. It's not racism. It's not sex trafficking. Those are colossal threats, Tom. They are like massive, life-changing, human-threatening threats. The whole, the, you know, all of humanity has their back against the wall. And war now, even, you know, right in front of us, uh, my wife is 100% Ukrainian. Her city just got bombed last week. I'm like, what? You know, like, like really missiles land on my wife's hometown. What is that? What are you talking about? Does she still have 
many family yeah, members there? There's family members there. Everyone's okay. Um, you know, God for, you know, thank God. Yes, um, but, totally. uh, you know, we're, and we're putting together a summit. I hope to tell you about, by, by the end, you know, the, this conversation, but those aren't the biggest problems in the world. The biggest threat to humanity in this world is that most of us aren't speaking our true voice anymore. We're not speaking our authentic message. We're either having it taken from us, you know, in some unfortunate situations, uh, in certain countries aren't letting their people speak at all, or, you know, or muffling or stifling or canceling or censoring what they say or not even letting them speak you know putting them into gulag or whatever they put them into when they do say their truth so where there's that and even for the people here in this country where free speech is supposedly the first amendment people aren't speaking it anymore they're afraid they're you know they're afraid that they're going to get hurt or heartbroken or misunderstood or canceled or censored or pushed off the group or who knows all sorts of fear so that's the biggest threat because without our voice, we're not going to be able to take on any of these other things either. And if we don't have the fire, like it's like we, there are no fire extinguishers. If there's no fire extinguishers, that's a bigger threat than any of the fires that are out there. We don't have the extinguisher. Sorry. So any fire is just going to keep burning if we don't have an extinguisher. And that's what's happening in the world. So until we get extinguishers, which I define as being bringing our authentic message openly and honestly into a world that's eager, ready, in fact, urgently waiting, looks like doom to me without our true voice. Like I can't imagine things naturally moving forward without our true voice, except of course, in the world that we were talking about before the show, you know, some sort of divine intervention. But when you start needing to lean on divine intervention to make your bet work, uh, you know, like a bet a horse, it's in last place and, you know, it's only 100 yards left and you think it's going to win. Uh, divine intervention. Look, it could happen. It could happen. But the cleanest way is to bring our true voice forward. And that's where this true voice methodology got built. True voice podcasting. I uh, taught a couple, you know, a couple courses where people went from zero to world class podcaster and had some just beautiful experiences with there. And then I wrote a book. Um, find your true voice. I know that's shocking. Um, that, that just came out this month. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's a cool book that your listeners, I'm going to offer your listeners a copy of that book for free. They can find it at no, find, findyourtruevoicebook.com. And uh, I'll, you know, if you're interested in what, you know, if this is resonating with any of your listeners at any way, um, I'd love to have, you know, you, there, it goes into this material a little bit deeper a little bit more in depth. And I invite your listeners to take a look at that book. And now as a podcaster, as a book writer, as a speaker, as a podcast host, as a 64-year-old man with a whole host of worldly experiences, living up here in Northern California with my wife and owned by my three cats, there's, there's uh, you know, two healthy kids down in Texas, thank goodness. It's all I have left, you know? All I have left is to at least be a it's like, oh, what am I going to do today? Hmm, I better save free speech. I think that would be a good one. And so off I go, you know, somehow by the start of a day, after I get over the wonder of, you know, what it means to be given another day's opportunity, eventually I fall into place that what I am is, is find your true voice. And that's who Dr. Fred really became. Even though both of us agree that this is the purest and last platform podcasting that is, do you think it's in danger of oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. in what manner? Tell me. Well, you know, Joe Rogan. I mean, you know, you start looking at Joe's situation and it's not just Joe. You know, the reason it's in danger is that 
the natural forces that be are in fact winning in the world to contract our true voice. And podcasting is an outlier that's still allowing our true voice to live freely and live powerfully. So of course, there is a next remaining powerful vestige. It's almost an enemy to the constriction, to, you know, to the, those who are really interested in constricting and restricting authentic communication. So it's almost like, you know, we do depend on a few different technologies to make podcasting work. Like, you know, this Zoom technology or, or uh, the Squadcast technology or the, even the internet itself. You know, if these things are taken away from us for some reason, as in fact they have been and could be in other big countries on the other side of the world, then we're done with podcasting. That's it for that. Podcasting is no longer interesting all of a sudden if you, people can't listen to us. So it's possible all they have to do or all one would have to do is cut that tie between us talking and people hearing us. So the time is now. It's an urgent time. It's, it, it really is. And it's not like we're going through this thing. And we're definitely not going through this thing if we don't stand up and maybe incrementally improve on delivering our true voice, like relationships with friends, with colleagues, with bosses, with family, with spouses, you know, in the living room, even in the bedroom, you know, those areas of life where you're not being honest and bringing forth your true voice are getting in the way of a lot of things. And I'm not asking you to upend or spit your nonsense from the top of a mountain. I'm asking you to take into consideration how to move the needle forward and just take some small steps towards being even more honest with yourself. So you just had a uh, True Voice Summit, correct? The True Voice Summit um, was a couple was about four weeks ago, and that was uh, uh, celebrating the graduates of the first True Voice Podcasting Summit, our podcasting course. It was spectacular. Um, and now I have this next summit. The next summit is called the We the People Summit. And the We the People Summit is a summit where I've assembled 24 amazing influencers who are going to speak to what it was like to become an influencer and what went into it. Coming in touch with their own authenticity is what led them to be an influencer. Now, by that, and I'm, we're getting a little taste of this right here in this conversation, we can teach people that all you really have to do to be an influencer is come in touch with your authentic message and deliver it effectively to even an audience of one. You then are a bona fide, absolute Tony Robbins level influencer. Correct. Who cares if he's got millions? You do not need to have a million followers or a million dollars or be a household name to be an influencer. But I'll tell you what, if you're not speaking your true voice, you're not influencing anybody. And people will pick up on that as well. That's, I, that's what read, I'm saying. They'll read right through that shit. I yeah, mean, they do. They do. Look, if you don't, If you don't speak your voice, no one will ever hear you. You won't be heard. Now, you can be herded if you don't speak your true voice. That's for sure. And if you don't speak your true voice, no one will ever know you. And I think Henry David Thoreau said it best, um, uh, Tom, which is the mass of men live lives of quiet desperation and go to the grave with the song still in them. And to me, that is the greatest tragedy of a life to have lived all these years and to leave without anyone ever knowing who you are. Yes. Wow. Yes. I mean, that resonates, that quote resonates and basically it sort of is parallel to my own life. I yeah. was in corporate sales, working for the man, and I just was miserable. Yeah. And all for a paycheck, had my own house. Tried to do all the right things by the perception of my community and my parents. 
And I had started the podcast. And of course, I loved my parents dearly, but they didn't understand my urge to do something creative and to use my voice to do so. I went back and took care of my mom and she got to listen to a couple of my episodes and she sort of understood it. She was born in 1941. I'm the baby of my family. And it just was too scary or daunting for her to understand, how are you ever going to make this work? And I just said, I have to do this. And I didn't have very much support from my family, some friends, of course, but I had to take that step. And mental health is obviously something that I've battled with since adolescence. And so I want to help people in any capacity by talking to people like yourself and musicians and, and celebrate for all forms of creativity and, and, and look at things in a different lens. Because we're living in a, in a society where people are scared because of social media and what they're seeing. And there are scary, you know, there are horrific things going on, like your wife's home country, where she's from. I mean, that is disturbing to me. Oh, yeah. To say the very least. Yeah. But it's also inspiring to see how the world is reacted. Well, the, you know, I guess I didn't put the punchline in for the We the People Summit because we are raising a million dollars for the Ukraine, right? For the women and children and refugees who have been devastated and disrupted over there. And we're doing that over the next six weeks. And it's true, you know, there's some sort of rallying, it seems, as we all focus down on this sort of next evil focus. We're all in agreement that there's something evil over there. Now, the truth is in four weeks or eight weeks or 12 weeks, we may, the way the world's been going, we probably have something new to point our attentions to that is super evil or frightening or threatening. And maybe it'll be 16 weeks or, or half a year, but we all rally. And you know, the thing that's so interesting, what would it be like if we all knew that we were one family of 7.8 billion people and that we could really access each other's strengths and each other's blessings and skills to delegate effectively in order to do some particular project. What if like the corporation was 7.8 billion deep and that we then were asked to perform some sort of project, you know, perhaps in my award-winning article called Global Madness, What the World Must Do to Unite, it won an award for best article at the Conference for Global Transformation. That article talks about, and I'll give a little teaser to the end of the article, that it would take something like a global threat. And climate control is not enough, apparently. And neither was the virus, and neither, or is the virus, or neither, you know, neither is this war. I mean, it's not really enough. You don't see everybody working together. I'm not that happy about going into crowds even right now. I'm always, you know, we've all become a little bit more concerned about all sorts of things that seem to be coming out of the woodwork scary times. But what if there was a global threat that we learned that three months from now, the Martians are coming, you know, really. And they're, they're about, they're about to take over the earth and that's it. And we're done. All 7.8 billion of us, we're done. Would that be enough for us to put down our shields and actually work together? And I, I got to tell you, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. One would hope though. <laughs> yeah. And that, that one would hope is the, is actually in the last paragraph of my article, that three word sentence. So one would hope is in the last three words is in the last paragraph of that sentence. It's like, I don't know. It might not, but boy, if, if it was uh pity those Martians, I've got to tell you that. Could we take them out? 
we would totally take them out. But I'm not sure. I'm not sure that's even big enough to do this. This stuff runs deep, you know. And if it's not going to do it, if we're not going to unite and we're still going to stay with our true voices unheard, our song unsung, well then, between now and then, continue to be a great person. What, what else you got to do? Because it, it's not going to end pretty. If we can't talk, if we can't talk, if we can't take this stuff on straight up, barring, of course, that divine intervention. Now, I know, I know. I'm not well, gonna... no, I mean, let's. Uh, another thing that we're, we've kind of danced and gotten near is the Orwellian <laughs> vision, you know, and, and China, where constantly you live in fear because you're being monitored on every street block. They're monitoring every keystroke and they're doing some of that here. Let's not, let's, let's be honest. For sure. But also that's why you and I are talking because podcasting is, <laughs> it's the last frontier. Yeah. I feel like. Yeah. The last vestige that allows for this kind of conversation to take place. It's true. And we don't know how long it's going to last. And you know, whether or not we're being monitored here, we would both be silly to think that there's nobody who knows that you and I are talking. There's plenty of people. That's who need correct. To yeah, let's just assume so. I mean, I, I do. Of course. It's not even, it's not even tough technology to think about that. That's really easy to understand. Absolutely. And what we're talking about, by the way, all our words are being heard too. It's like, you know, it's not quite 1984. I, I can't even finish 1984. I tried to read it at the start of pandemic. I got to the third section. You know, it's a three-section book. I'm like, dude. It's a tough read. It's a but, tough uh, read. Yeah. But it's also, I think there's some lessons oh that, can, that can be uh, learned from it. Yeah, I know. I mean, it could go a lot of different ways. So we don't have to look down the doomsday tunnel. There's other ways that this could go. And but my goodness, it's uh, that third section of 1984. Like, once you get to the helm of that, of the first two sections, and you start hearing what's going on, and you're like, "Oh, this isn't going to work out that good for Winston, is it? Oh, Winston's not going to do that good in this one, I don't think." And then I hear that, "No, he doesn't do that good." I'm like, "Well, shit, then I'm not. I don't want to finish this book." <laughs> and I, my fear sets in, and I don't listen. And I, you know, here's the thing about listening. Let me say something about listening for your audience. It is the magic ingredient towards learning how to bring your true voice. So I mentioned, I don't really want you to get to a top of a mountain and tell people that you hate, you know, you hate them or that you're, you know, I don't want you to get that true voice means regurgitating and throwing up on everybody that which you wish you would have said 20 years ago, just to show people that you just can't stand them or you disagree with them. No, true voice is about taking into consideration who's out there and moving the needle forward. Like at not just getting it off your chest, but getting it off your chest in a way that makes a positive difference and moves the needle forward, given the context of the situation and whoever you're with that's listening to you. That's the essence of true voice, not just find what's in your gut and spit it out like a hairball. No, 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 no. That's not true voice. That's just being combatively insulting. There's nothing that good about that. And what's so beautiful about listening is as best as I can tell, you cannot get into any trouble by listening. Yeah, I can agree with that because I think part of the problem with what's going on in the world is that we are just spouting out shit and our beliefs without even hearing the other side. That's right. The other person's perspective. That's right. And now you have such a polarized, not only here in America, but throughout the world, where if we were just able to listen, all this hatred is being spewed out in the world 
is disturbing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and in a way, I'm using my podcast, talking to you and getting your your input. And, and that's what I'm trying to do is embrace different ways of thinking about things. Yeah. In all forms of fashion, because people are, I'm not going to say that there's Kool-Aid, but you have to question things. Otherwise, you're going to wake up and feel the harsh reality of that throw quote that you brought up and just yeah. said about 20 minutes ago. Yeah. And say, what was the point of all this? What, <laughs> what did I do with my life? What did I do with my life? Right. And so that would be the massive tragedy that awaits those who are thinking that they'll just say it when, you know, if and when the time is right. Well, what I have is that the time is right. It is ludicrous, straight up ludicrous to believe, as all of us humans do, by the way, including me, that pretending to be someone we're not is a way of protecting the person that we are. Dude. Did you just really say that? <laughs> Did you really just say that? Because that's just insanity. Yeah. But I mean, it's we true. We all do it. Yeah, I, it's true. My parents, if they were still living, would be mortified with what I'm doing. And that's the sad truth. But I also know I'm a spiritual person that they would they get it now, wherever they are. Yeah. And out there in the cosmos. Yeah. And that's what you have to live. Otherwise, I mean, I had I struggled to get out of bed some days. Oh yeah. Welcome saying, to humanity. What the fuck am I doing? Yeah. That still goes on, man. Oh yeah. I mean, that still goes on. Most mornings, if not every morning, I get a strong injection of that exact experience. And I'm I'm pretty strong. I got a nice place in this world. I do. I, you know, I've been gifted with a really power. I am I'm deeply privileged in so many different ways, whatever the hell that means. It's no longer privileged to be a white man. It seems like a white man is a, a target these days, but it's still, we're a target because we're oh so privileged, but I'm just saying, and nevertheless, even having a, a you know a deep position and having a cool degree and uh, you know have, being articulate, being passionate, being interesting, being fun, all the things that I am, that I can actually make a difference. I can touch hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of people with, you know, at a time, perhaps even as we're speaking now, maybe that's what's happening. And uh, nevertheless, man, you know, I wake up and all, everything has fallen out of place. So I just wake up to me and me. And I'm like, what, what am I doing? What, what did I say I would do? Who am I? Yeah, what? And you know, I got to get over all that before I even climb out of bed or I need to get out of bed early. That's really wake up and get out of bed and start my workout or start, you know, take a cold shower or do whatever I need to do. Forced optimism is what I like to, how I like to phrase some on some days, because that's what I'm trying to do. If I can help people in any form or fashion. Yeah. Yeah, that is gratifying to me. And I'm not perfect. My God, I've made so many mistakes in my life. But what I do want is to try to let people understand that it's okay to be depressed. It's okay to be misunderstood, to not give up and follow not your gut, but just find somebody who understands you. Yeah, because there have been days where I've been so depressed that it, all I needed was to pick up the phone and some medicine for me is music and laughter. Hmm. And it's also been my shield, 
right? Yeah. Uh, that's how I deflected from sure. from difficult situations growing up and just living life. But let's talk about this true voice. Um, enlighten me. I mean, obviously, you don't have to share all the ingredients, but give me a broad stroke of what this is all about. You've done it somewhat, but I'd like it. <laughs> give me yeah. some more color to the illustration. Yeah. You know, basically, the true voice methodology takes into consideration several different things. You know, primarily, the true voice methodology is about uh, really getting that pretending to be somebody you're not is an ineffective way to protect the person that you are. And it's not like it's bad or wrong. We all learned how to do that when we were kids. We learned how to be duplicitous. We learned how to be pretentious. You know, if I cry and I get a lollipop, I'm going to find my way to crying again. <laughs> if I tell a lie and my sister gets in trouble for something I did, I'm going to tell a lie again. You know, there's an opportunity to see that there is immediate gratification available in manipulating the truth. So we get good at that when we're young. And frankly, we also get good at not communicating when we're young, because when we're in conventional education, we're told to sit down and be quiet, just listen. And, and how do we know that we listen? If we can repeat exactly what the teacher said. This is not a form of active communication or inquiry at all. This is a form of, um, of, of blanketing, of smothering. So what's real interesting is that we have taken that, that early way of being and the crack in the cement has gotten larger over time and so in fact we are living different levels of a lives of quiet desperation so the first principle is that this is an ineffective way to protect our real self either way by the way you're going to get canceled or censored so if you're going to get canceled or censored even when you act like you're someone you're not just as easily as you're going to be canceled or censored when you act like someone you are, if you really have a choice between those two and they're equal, then by golly, choose the one you are. I mean, you don't even have to remember anything if you're already that person. Go with, down with a sinking ship. At least you know you tr fucking tried. At least so, right? So you don't have much to say about m most things in the world, but you do have something to say about what you say. And you do have something to say about who you be. So you can make decisions from this point that are different than all, all the other habits you've had when you've gotten to places that you think look like this. You can do something new. That's also part of the true voice. Now, the truth is, is that speaking authentically is effective. Even if people disagree with your content, they are triggered, they are inquired, I'm sorry, inspired by the space that you create when you speak authentically you might remember that you've heard people say things that are diametrically opposed to what you have to think or what you have to say and yet you can respect them as long as they're speaking authentically from their heart because authenticity is more interesting than agreement here's the next piece you can bridge this gap you can you can bridge the gap between who you are and who you pretend to be and the key ingredient as i've already said is in the world of listening Listen carefully to who's there with you. You can't hurt yourself by listening. No one, you can't even cause damage if you're listening. Listen carefully to what's seeking to be emerged. Now, another piece is that self-expression comes in many flavors. In my first book, The Creative Eight, it doesn't have to be through speaking. You already mentioned, you know, there's music, there's art, there's dancing, there's singing, there's drama, there's cooking, writing, gardening. There are lots of things to do where we create and those are forms of self-expression. So true voice doesn't have to be just the spoken word vocality. 
A couple things associated with the True Voice methodology is it's time to right now forgive, accept, and have compassion for who you are and who you've been and for other people who they are and they've been, even those people you cannot stand. Like no one really cares that you can't stand them. But dismissing them out of hand and not listening at all, not respecting anything to say because you don't like at least one thing that they stand for or three or five things that they stand for doesn't do anybody any good. There's a person over there. It's okay. It's just okay to forgive, accept, and show some compassion for that person becoming who they did. And more importantly, for you becoming who you are. You've done some things that you have shame and blame and guilt about. Can you give yourself? forgiveness. Can you accept who you now are as a function of all the things you've done in your life that you're not very proud of? In order to have true voice, you're going to have to practice real conversations. That means like an, an audience from one or a half a dozen or 20 or a hundred or a thousand, 10,000 or more. So have those conversations, take those steps, actually speak more from your heart. The next conversation you have than the one you had yesterday actually go forth into real conversations. We mentioned earlier, blurting or spilling your raw self is not true voice. True voice is taking into consideration the context and the listening of the person or the people that you're with and speaking in order to move the conversation forward, move the needle forward. The true voice methodology is a group of like-minded individuals who are collectively committed to speaking truth and listening to others while bringing forth an experience of healing, love, and peace to the world. What I like to say, Tom, is that true voice ends wars. It does. All wars, not just that war over there, the wars inside yourself and the wars outside of yourself. So the true voice methodology is simply that. Now, your true voice is not something you have to say today and agree with tomorrow. You can say what's so for you right now without any commitment to have that be so for you tomorrow. What we really want from another person is not only to be heard, but to hear their true voice. And what I'm asking you to get and your listeners to get is the idea that that can change. It's okay. New information, new data, new context, new listening. Perhaps what you thought yesterday isn't what you think today or who you were yesterday is not who you're gonna be today, welcome to humanity. Life is fluid. I mean, it's constantly changing. And so can your viewpoints and beliefs. It's unpredictable. We don't know what is going to happen. Now, the only thing that I must say to that is, how about Putin? Like that guy's not listening to a friggin' person at, at all. Well, it's really interesting with Putin and I'm not going to, I'm not going to, you know, again, my wife is Ukrainian, so I do have some rich and deep thoughts about the man, but it's not the man of Putin. You know, we have it loaded that Putin's single-handedly managing this and that's how it's going. Putin is us. Putin is our brother too. I hate to tell you, Putin's our brother too. And we, we actually know what it's like to be vengeful or to be megalomanic or to, you know, we know what it's like. We all have a touch of us who is that. And he's just showing us a part of humanity that we're all connected with. That's why we can't stand it. So can you forgive him? I mean, you want to have dinner with the guy? That's not quite what I'm saying. No, absolutely not. But what I am saying is 
can we see that his purpose in the world as he is is something he is showing us or challenging us or quizzing us or going through whatever his pain his own trauma his own history his own wounds you know we have it be that he's the evil character the most evil we're all so sure of that now we're all unified about it and then we all have support from each other to know that it's all him maybe it isn't by the way I mean, there's some people who are like, no, maybe he's not really at the center of it, but he's just being used out there as if he is. We're only watching the news together, algorithm-based news after all. We don't really know, but it's not like I want to like say he's a good man. That isn't what I'm saying. What I am saying is look where humanity can go. And when you look at the exquisite nature of all, all experiences of life, like we just talked about, misery, pain, fear, discomfort even murderous uh, intentions, we can start seeing that although some seem to be more valuable than others, the experience, the entire experience of life, every piece of it is super valuable. If our intention is not to die, if we're gonna live this life and our intention is not to die, first of all, that that's pretty odd too, since that's a, the only in a, that's the only inevitable piece of life that you we and have. I are dying right now. Yeah, dude. Literally. We have zero chance of living. Yeah, I mean, we, we all have a limited amount of time and we can control that by our lifestyles and so forth, but a little bit. We're, we're all going to die. Yeah. We're dying. Yeah. <laughs> That's grim to say, but it's the truth. It's not, it's not even grim. I mean, it's just like the only inevitable. Yeah, who called it grim and it has everybody think it's grim. It's so interesting that we have it. We are so afraid of death. Me too, by the way. We are so afraid of death that we're willing to kill ourselves to prevent it. Yeah. Amazing. We are amazing creatures. We come up with some really interesting ideas through this thinking self of, our, of us. If we could see, for instance, and I'm sure you have an access to this to some level, uh, you know, if we could see the eternity, if we knew that we were just going into the next world, if we could see that maybe death is actually, uh, in some cases, mm, you know, Here's what I think about death. If we can get to our death day without any hurry to die or without any hurry to avoid it, like actually like both those things are taken care of. We don't want to run away and we don't want to run towards. We're just there. Then that would be a life truly amazingly well lived. So the goal is to get to that death day without being in a hurry to die and without being in a, you know worried and needing to run away from it. This is a controversial topic, this topic of death, you know, and, and it dominate. It's so dominant in the world and all of our fears. But we have to come to grips with it. I've, I've personally have seen both my parents die in front of me. It's death is not pretty. No, not pretty. It's and, yeah. It, but it's, it's just a fact and we have to face it and realize that in order to live our true selves and live without fear otherwise what's the point yeah this has been a really enlightening conversation and we could go on for a while i look forward to seeing how this all comes together thank uh, you so much it's very, yeah it's very exciting thank you thanks again all right tom dr fred argues that the biggest threat to humanity is that we cannot speak our authentic voice Instead, he sends a battle cry of urgency to stand up and speak out with our true voice, even incrementally, to reduce obstacles and be authentic. While he may be controversial at times, Dr. Fred is living his example, speaking up and hoping to be heard. 
as he said, if you don't speak your true voice, you'll never be known. That resonates when I think of times when I've stifled my voice for fear of rejection, failure, or confrontation. I hope it resonates with you as well because the support from all of my listeners is what allows me to be known and heard. This podcast is where I've been able to express my authentic voice. It's an evolving journey, and I appreciate you all for listening. I'm Tom Hartridge, and until next time, this is Neurons to Nirvana. Thank you.